This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1245, which is entitled The Mystery of the Haunted Prior. Our podcast title is Ghost Podders. Now, I am Rob Jan. And Megan McHugh. And we are going to be chatting to Michael Pryor, who has a new book, his 39th, called Graveyard Shifting Ghost Town, in just a second. I actually want to berate ourselves for talking about the Stranger Things last week. And not even... Did we, we mentioned Carrie Gulls was in the, in the cast of that, playing the mayor, but we never even drilled down into that. No, we really... That was a, quite the oversight. Mm. Uh, we did have a lot to cover, to be fair, but yes, he pops up in quite a semi-pivotal role, mm. which was kind of nice to see him in a more aged uh, look. <laughs> what did I last see him in? I think I saw him get killed in Twister. Oh, that's a while. <laughs> that's a while since. <laughs> a very long time ago. Anyway, he was, he, was, he was fun and evil. Yes. And what else do you need? That's and it. I've since finished, and uh, I think it's probably, it's definitely up there. I really like what they've done with season three. So. Yeah. yeah. Although, um, without giving anything away, I believe the after credits scene was unnecessary. I agree with you. Hmm. All right. Now. <laughs> <laughs> now that's out of the that's way. That's out of the way. I just had to get that off my chest. Melbourne-based science fiction and fantasy fabulist and wordsmith Michael Pryor, short story writer and creator of the series The Doorways Trilogy, The Laws of Magic, The Chronicles of Krangor, and contributing novelist to and co-series editor for the Quintaris Chronicles, as well as being the writer of at least six other novels. This is his 39th book, Graveyard Shift in Ghost Town, and it's an Allen and Unwin paperback. Now, he is here today with this book, which is an account of the adventures of Anton, Rani and Beck, amongst others, young ghost hunters working for Marin Ghost Hunting Incorporated in our very own Melbourne town. G'day, Michael. Hey, Rob. Hey, Megan. Hello. Look, it, it never gets old seeing genre novelists confidently set their stories in our own city. Which has not been the case always. No, look, 39 novels, as you said, and I think one of them I sort of briefly transitioned characters through Melbourne, but this one is fairly and squarely set in uh, good old marvellous Melbourne. In some ways, uh, these two books, the first book in the series was Gap Year in Ghost Town, they're they're almost a bit of a love song to uh, this great old city of ours. Now, that was a question I was going to ask you, and you've just answered it. Um, look, I haven't actually read the first one, so I'm reading through this book and, and getting the, uh, the the back references and stuff and thinking either Michael is really one of those cool writers who's able to weave in a backstory with a few deft touches, or else there actually is a first novel. It certainly <laughs> is a first novel, but they're, they're pretty much standalone. It, uh, you know, I have these, these, these theories about uh, book series, 
And in some ways, I think these are more like your Patrick O'Brien novel sequence mm-hmm. rather than a serial that ends on a cliffhanger and you've got to read book one before you go into book two. Yeah. No, they're pretty much standalone. And I seed in enough of the backstory so you get an idea of who the characters are in the setting, as you've just proved. Yeah, witness me. I've exactly. not read the other one and, and, and I got the whole thing from that as I went along. So... Um, Going back to uh, setting things in Melbourne, I can remember reading Neville Shoots on the beach back in the 60s or 70s and seeing the movie and then being really chuffed that I knew where things were taking place. Like, you know, a, a character was garaging his racing car in the back alleys off Elizabeth Street, you know. <laughs> and it's great to fun to follow along with the locations. Although, of course, you can do that anywhere now with, you know, with um, Google Earth and Maps and so on. But uh, I think I did that with um, Sean McMullen's novel, um, Centurion's... Uh, Centurion, Centurion. <laughs> but I've been doing that also since reading some of Norman Lindsay's um, Larrikin novels. So a lot of those have got more Melbourne locations. So it was great to see. Like, you've got the Royal Society of Victoria building. Um, I am actually a member of the Royal Society. I I joined up. No, I'm not a fellow of the Royal Society. That's very special. (laughs) Yes. Uh, I am a member, which means I pay my annual dues and... uh, and I get to go along to lectures and uh, and to basically get to wander around that wonderful old building that people go past, yeah. thousands of people go past every day, and most of them have no idea what that building is. It's up the uh, the north end of Exhibition Street in that little triangle of land that sort of chafes between uh, Victoria Street and... Rathdown Street. Rathdown Street, yeah. yeah. Yep. And so opposite the Exhibition Building. And uh, it used to hold the weather station, the Melbourne Weather yep. Report, Station until a couple of years ago, but it it is a glorious building on the inside. It's got one of those classic small lecture theatres that you can see Victorian gentlemen conducting their uh, illuminated lectures, sort of (laughs) popular science and all of that business. Yeah, great fun. I wonder if. um Mark Twain or Charles Dickens ever gave a lecture in that one in particular? Wouldn't be surprised. Maybe. I I actually think they may have bobbed up at the Athenaeum. Yeah, more likely. Or maybe Mr Wells or somebody. (laughs) All right, now, um, this other aspect, it also keeps fascinating me because I'm dropping through into the the places that I I know and have visited, like (laughs) Pellegrini's and, you know. um, uh, Although the funny thing is, because I'm not a coffee drinker, I, I know of these places, but I never set foot in them. <laughs> it, it, it's, sometimes it, it is a little bit like name-checking. I do go for some of the prominent Melbourne landmarks, but also some of the lesser-known ones like mm. the RSV. But it, it's, mm, it's daunting and it has, it's fraught with peril, this business of setting your, uh, your story in a contemporary real landscape. I can't fudge it. Whereas my fantasies, oh, yeah, okay, I can organise maps to suit myself. And there are other dangers. Like I wrote a marvellous sequence uh, in the first draft, a couple of chapters set in a prominent Melbourne landmark. Uh, and it was all about history and had references to rock and rollers and wrestlers because I'd uh, scoped out Festival Hall. As <laughs> soon as I finished, it, the day after I finished writing those two chapters, uh, the, all the media came out. Festival Hall was being sold and demolished. Yeah. So I had to junk those two wonderful chapters. I, I can remember, this is not equivalent really, but I can remember writing a fan story about Buffy the Vampire Slayer versus the Predator. And she'd come here to Melbourne on her 
um, gap year, <laughs> and it was going to be in uh, the Southern Cross Hotel, which had stood vacant for like eight years. Mm. And then as soon as I finished, they knocked it down. Yeah. <laughs> Transient times it is. Yes. Mm. Now, I see you've come up with a slew of names for the various categories of ghosts in your story. It's almost like an observer's book of ghosts of the Commonwealth. Now, are you, are you got any idea that maybe you could uh, – is this online? Do you have like a – A, a, a compendium or yeah. something, yeah. <laughs> I, I haven't put it online. It, it, it was one of the initial con- conceptions of the story because I always find it fun when writers do that. They have a taxonomy of whatever. And this is my taxonomy of ghosts um, in the Marin uh, jargon, if you like. And it just starts to differentiate them and once you – put a tag on something makes it a little bit more real and so i do have i think it's about 18 different ghosts not all <laughs> of them have appeared in the story and there's plenty of room for me to make up more got to collect them all <laughs> <laughs> actually that the, the um your uh let's call it the ghost procedural mm-hmm. in this story because we're very big on procedural on zero g and it's actually a hard ask for me to like a ghost story because I'm not in any way, shape or ectoplasmic form a believer in spirits or souls or anything like that. You know, it's all just meat and that's the end of it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's not bleak. It's very comforting. It's very comforting. I like me. that, Rob. Frank, up front. Yeah, Frank, <laughs> Frank Castle, up front. Um, but, yeah, so it's hard for me to get into them and follow them, but you got me with this. Well, that's really interesting because I'm, I'm a hard and fast rationalist too. I'm yeah. an empiricist from way back. And, yeah, if you can't buy it, it doesn't really exist. <laughs> but I'm making a story. It's yeah, a story. Exactly. It's yeah. a fantasy. It's all like that. But once I start getting into the realms of the, the supernatural and the, uh, as you say, the ectoplasmic, I want to make it as solid as possible. So <laughs> I have to get into the theory. I have to get into the idea. Mm. But it, it, it is a whole realm where the main character admits many times, he said, we just don't know. Yeah, uh, There's a lot of talk about this in ghost hunting circles. Um, uh, these people over here say one thing, these people say the other, but you know, it's, you know, it's a bit uncertain, which I like. I like that it's not hard and fast. It's not all as concrete, but... It's many different concretes, if you like. Yeah. There's a couple of zombie novels I've read that um, uh, address the fact that zombies were once people that we knew and perhaps loved or relatives or friends or whatever, Uh, you know, somebody's mother, somebody's father or son or daughter. Uh, And in those books, those particular ones, they they, uh, adopt a more, well, like almost a compassionate approach to knocking off the zombies. Uh, Sometimes in in Z Nation they call it, uh, I give you mercy. You know, and, and it kind of is quite touching. Now, you've got a kind of a similar thing going on in, in this one. It's not just all just uh, busting the ghosts. Mm. Mm. Because the ghosts are dangerous. Uh, every, that's one thing everybody agrees on. Ghosts hang around us and sort of they, they leech on us, they, they make us uh, unwell, mm. and they can drive us to despair, if you like. And so that's where the ghost hunting community come from. They're protecting us from ghosts, and ghosts are nasty. But there are different approaches to how you do this. Now, the standard way is basically you chop ghosts to little pieces and that sends them on 
wherever ghosts go on uh, when they leave this plane. But uh, the Marin family, the main character, Anton Marin, uh, has generations of this alternative approach. <laughs> and his approach and uh, the approach of his family is to ease their passage. That's the phrase he uses. And it's essentially to send them on gently into the great unknown. Uh, and so they retain some integrity. Now, he, he points out, uh, he says this quite clearly, ghosts are not us. They are not remnants of us. They are something that is spawned at the moment of our death. And they're imperfect. They, they draw on our memories and our lives imperfectly, uh, but they're, they're not us. I often wondered if, um, you know, about proof of, um, of ghosts, before I realised that, that animals and, and insects and everything must have souls as well, if souls exist, we'd be knee-deep in chickens <laughs> and, you know, and all the other things that we've eaten. And I thought, well, we're not. So, But last night in these terrible windstorms, I'm listening to the wind and thinking, what if that's them? <laughs> this is one of the problems of approaching it logically. Once yes. I start thinking logically about ghosts, there are all of these consequences. Yeah. And the knee-deep in ghosts, I went through that too. I thought, oh, geez, this is the case. We would be ghosts everywhere. So that's why I posit this idea that the ghosts are here as like a staging place before they go on elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Mm. And you have people who are, you know, the essential trope of being a chosen one who have the sight and can see them. But not everybody has the full sight. So you've got, <laughs> this is again, it's like the Observer's book, you've got spotters who can, who can um, sight them but not fully. And then you've got the actual ghost hunters themselves who are much more able to, to deal with them. They've got the whole shebang. They've got yeah. the whole business. They can see ghosts and they can dispatch them. And then, again, this is my rational side coming into it. I thought, this side, how, how do you get it? Where does it come from? It's a genetic thing. If it's a genetic thing, there is the possibility of some people only having it partially, some people having skipping generations, not mm. having it at, at all. Anton's dad is one of those ones. He does not have the sight. He's been brought up in a family for generations of goat hunters, but he doesn't have it, mm. which is a character element that plays through the entire story. <laughs> just think, for some reason I had a slip of the mental tongue then I'm thinking oh this is a great book about goat hunters <laughs> <laughs> I just made a, uh, a sign to Megan there to tell her the next track to play and I just realised I did it just the way that Doctor Strange does in Endgame <laughs> I held up one finger <laughs> and I knew what I had to do <laughs> and it was a polite finger too <laughs> Actually, what if Tony Stark had just given, you know, he's seen that finger and then gave him the finger back? <laughs> Not implausible. No, no, no. Not no, at no. all implausible. <laughs> okay, so I wanted a track to play that would uh, be about gentling ghosts into uh, their great reward and helping them move onwards. So naturally, I thought of this show. This is Neil Gaiman in the dangerous alphabet zero, G comes last, Z waits alone, and it's not for a thing. Hmm. Actually, I think Neil Gaiman was here with a book called Graveyard as well. Oh. Come to think of it, back in the day. Uh, we are the ghost faces here on Zero G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio on Tree Triple RFM. I am Rob Jan. And Megan McHugh. And we're here with Michael Pryor, who has his new book, his 39th novel, Graveyard Shift in Ghost Town. Did you recognise that song there, Michael? I didn't. Didn't? Ah, we got a, a pop culture reference past you. It's from Supernatural. Uh, they have a, uh, a group of ghost hunters in there who are, let's just say they're less than uh, the Winchester family, 
but uh, they're out there fighting the ghosts and they've got their own television show, uh, podcast, you know, episodes and, and, and a special theme for themselves as well. <laughs> okay, so we're talking about uh, the novel here and one of the things that uh, I noticed, of course, is that the, the ghosts tend to manifest in the clothing that they died in, rather like Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So yes. speak, um, speak to this. Yeah, certainly, that came from my desire to give the ghost hunters some sort of visual cue where these ghosts are from, which allows me to roam up and down history mm-hmm. uh, there. And the, one of the things that the young ghost hunters have to get good at is uh, spotting clothes and spotting various items of, uh, of accoutrement and being able to... Uh, posit that the ghosts land in this particular view. It, it doesn't make a lot of difference to them, essentially, but it's just a little bit of a, a side bit of interest for them. Buffy managed to use it. Buffy used it because of her fashion skills, and, and it, it actually had a use in, in her job. She was able to say, well, that one's from the 70s. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Actually, speaking of costumes, I know you're a bit of a cosplayer and have your own top hat and all of that sort of stuff. Uh, uh, I just noticed that you're wearing a, um, a shirt with cassette tapes on it. Is this your radio shirt? This, <laughs> this is one that I do put aside for wearing into uh, studios because, and it's so retro, so old-fashioned tech. And you failed to notice the jacket. This jacket is a Matrix jacket. Oh, is it really? When they were making the Matrix in Sydney, the people who I bought this from, they supplied uh, a whole lot of the gear for Neo and mostly for the second and third thugs. (laughs) This is my second thug jacket. Okay. Nice. If anything should happen to us in the studio at the moment, you went to the Great Beyond, you'd be a thug ghost. That's absolutely right. There are thugs all throughout Graveyard Shift and Ghost Town. (laughs) Okay, so... um, uh, riffing off that, I also thought the uh, the idea that when the ghosts are sent sent onwards, uh, they sort of dissipate in a, a whirl of uh, memories. That must have been fun to write, selecting the memories for each ghost. Yeah, that is, and that's another reason for the historical references too, because I could then draw on particular time periods for the ghosts' memory fragments, or little shards of memory that the ghost hunters are left with mm-hmm. when the ghosts dissipate, and it. It is one of the things I was trying to do is to to give some sense of ghosts as drawing on really ordinary domestic memories. No, very rarely is there a great big revelatory <laughs> memory. It's mostly about home and family and jobs and work. Uh, although there is one at one moment, there is somebody who met somebody really famous, and that memory stayed with them mm. when they dissipated. But mm. mostly it's about smells, touches and mm. sensations. So try to get all of the whole sensory input through memory as well there. These ones like, um, did I leave the gas on? <laughs> <laughs> and clearly it's just the, the, the ghost is sort of <laughs> a bit uh, exploderated. Perhaps they did not. They did leave the gas on. <laughs> Now, another detail that I I liked was um, you mentioned some possums in there, um, which I think are actually responsible for so many Aussie legends in terms of monsters and bunyips and anything that makes creepy noises in the night when you walk under its gum tree. People from overseas who come to Australia, they they can't put the two together. Mm. They see this lovely, cute, fluffy critter, (laughs) and then a few minutes later they hear this awful sound and they think it's something else entirely. But uh, possums are lovely. The the very first chapter 
of the first book, Gap Year and Goes Down There, as a, a close encounter with a possum in the <laughs> Fitzroy Gardens. And that's a, a, yes, a comic sequence. Yes. Uh, an occupational hazard when you're hanging out in... Um in one of Melbourne's many gardens and surveilling a ghostly site where something's manifesting. You run into possums all the time. Okay, now, uh, look, you've, you've got a lot of um, pop culture references in this book, uh, most of which I, we probably got most of them. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think many, unless they're like a, a song one, which has, I might be, struggle a bit. <laughs> There's a reference to Sam and Dean Winchester. And uh, and I noticed uh, doing some um, uh, podcasting for a, a young science-orientated audience last week or the week before, something like that. I've, hello, Dr Andy, formerly of Triple R. Um, and she's saying try to keep the, the references within the last... 10 years or something like that <laughs> and it's actually really difficult but you've got a fairly wide spread of pop culture references in the book yeah i go wide although we have discussions the editor and i about uh, how appropriate some of these pop culture references are and how well known they would be obscurity mm. is fine for yeah. me I, I don't have a problem like that there is one person out there who will get that reference and jump for joy and that, that's good <laughs> enough for me but uh there are a few of them like we i in the first book there are a number of references to Community, one of my favourite all-time sitcom shows. Mm. Now the uh, Russo brothers. Oh, and mm. it, it, it's uh, uh, Troy and Arbyn in the morning, that whole business. Uh, and book two, she gently advised me, and, and a lot of young people, that the Community <laughs> was a long time ago. Aww. I think eight, ten years is... Yep. Well, I suppose it is. For someone who is 16, eight years is a long, long time ago. But well... I still managed to get lots of Arrested Development. I mean, that, 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 that was and important I think for me. Arrested Development is before Community's time, so that's very interesting, isn't it? it arrested Development stretched. Yeah, over, that's true. Over. They kept, they stayed alive yes, <laughs> for yeah. many iterations. Can't but they just look it up? Well, exactly. You know, I, I mean, mean things got... don't die anymore. Exactly. They're there perpetually because yeah. of, uh, thanks to technology, and it means you can dive back into all sorts of things. That, yeah. Uh, uh, it, it was conscious and deliberate mm. initially to get the pop culture references in, but then I took a step back from that and I just let let it come. The things that I was watching, the things that I was familiar with, and when character A says something, it is only natural character B will come back with a pop culture reference because they're just yeah. they're immersed, they're marinating in that world all the time, and it, it, it is just second nature to bop back with that sort of stuff. No, no, they're marinating. Marinating, yes, I get that. <laughs> I understood that reference, <laughs> and I understood. I that, hope so. <laughs> I understood that you understood that reference. <laughs> there, there is a moment without too many spoilers where uh, the characters do the Steve Rogers thing from uh, Avengers, oh. where, he, where he says, "I got that reference," mm. and someone says, "Yes," and that is a reference in itself, which makes it so meta that my head's going to explode. Mic, <laughs> mic drop. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't get the empty smile of indulgence instead of the chuckle of knowledge. <laughs> they can all do that. Yes. Okay, so the big question is, do you really think the Guardian of the Galaxy 2 is better than, than, than number one? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> I'm not responsible for what my characters think. Though. Okay. That's true. Okay. <laughs> all right, let's have another track here. Again, gentling ghosts into that good night. 
This is Kim Stanley Robinson, author of Red Mars, Green Mars, and Blue Mars. You're listening to Zero G on 3 Triple R. Yes, Melinda Gordon, Ghost Whisperer, Jennifer <laughs> Love Hewitt there. In that series, it ran from 2005 to 2010. It wasn't my favourite. No. no. But. <laughs> but good on Jennifer Love Hewitt for, you know, finding a second wind after her teen comedy days. Yeah, keeping keeping the world safe for ghosts there with Ghost Whisperer. Exactly. We are talking about a ghost-related book here, Graveyard Shift in Ghost Town by Michael Pryor. It is an Alan and Unwin paperback. Is there a... This is the second book in the series. Yeah. Is there an overarching title for the series? We're kicking that around, and it looks like it's going to be the Ghost Town series. Mm. The first book was Gap Year in Ghost Town. second book is Graveyard Shift in Ghost Town. What's, what's consistent? Ghost Town. Yes. Makes sense. Mm. So, a trilogy at least? Uh, I'd like a trilogy. Mm. Uh, I've got uh, book three pretty much mapped out. I've got a thing, few things to kick around. Mm-hmm. And the thing that would guarantee a trilogy, of course, is enormous sales. So, <laughs> anybody out there, don't just buy one for yourself. Buy one from a friend too. Is it available electronically as well? Yep. Oh, good. Okay. Just like to know these things. Mm-hmm. It's important. Uh, now, um, I thought one of the things that stood out for me in the book is the idea that they're they're still mapping out where the ghosts go after they're dispatched, the elsewhere component of the novel, without giving too much away. Mm. Uh, There there is a lot of argument about it. And there are people who are ghost-hunting theoreticians or academics who get into really abstruse argument about it. And then the -the on-the-ground coalface ghost hunters, they inevitably wonder about, well, where exactly do the ghosts go once we dispatch them? There is the notion that there is an elsewhere but exactly what happens there and is there an elsewhere elsewhere after that is all <laughs> up in the air. Uh, but part of that comes back to bite them uh, without saying too much yeah. about the book. Hmm. Uh, I notice the, uh, the end papers of this book are illustrated. Uh, we've, it looks to me like a black and white imprint of the... Um Part of the cover or something? Yeah, yeah. yeah actually it is. Who's the artist on, on Craig the... Craig uh... Phillips did the illustration for both books, mm-hmm. and he, he's a talent. He's uh, done some extremely clever graphic novels for younger people. Mm-hmm. He did a wonderful book that came out, I think, last year about uh, gods and monsters, uh, and he loves the Norse legends. So have a look at some of his work on Facebook and on Twitter. Uh, a very talented young man. What was the name again? Craig Phillips. Some of it looks like uh, the faces of the ghosts. It reminds me of um, some work in an animated film, which is now dated, uh, called The um, the Book of Kells. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that Irish uh, yeah. one. Hmm, interesting. All right, I like to know these things sometimes <laughs> in this case. Now, uh, there's a character who comes back after being lost somewhere, Aunt... Tanya? Yeah. Mm, mm. Tanya, Tanya. Mm. Tanja, Tanya? It's a Y. It's a Y. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, she seems to be rather a special aunt, again, without uh, giving anything away. But speaking to her character before she went, wherever she went, um, do you have a lot of great aunts? Have you had a lot of great aunts in your life? I don't, I don't recall any great aunts. I've certainly got aunts. My, my mum came from a family of six or seven and lots of aunts were around, but they were very, very distant. Hmm. Uh, 
people often ask me, what's your book about? And when I sit down and think about it, I think this book and almost all of my books, if you really want, they're about family. Mm. There's a lot of family stuff going on here. In some, It's a contemporary novel with a lot of uh, spooky, supernatural uh, comedy going on at the same time. And the family relationships uh, are, are vital for making the book uh, to ground it in some ways. Mm. And so Anton, the, the main character, the, um, the voice of the novel, it's a first-person novel, it's Anton talking to you, basically. Uh, and his aunt disappeared after some dreadful uh, um, ghost hunting, magical things going wrong. And his dad, uh, his mum left after a bit of a family tragedy some time ago. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Anton, at 18, going on 19, is, is charting these sort of things too. And uh, his aunt was the one who had the ghost sight when his dad didn't. So she taught him the practicalities of this is how you hunt ghosts, the Marin way. And she was a bit of a no-nonsense character. His dad is much gentler, much uh, much more laid back about many things. Runs a bookshop. He runs a bookshop <laughs> up in Thornbury. And, uh, and he he's an interesting... I mean, he's a character in his own right, as he should be. One of the things I like to do in all of my novels for young people is have the parents are there. They're not missing. It's so convenient. Unless they actually are. (laughs) It's so convenient and so easy. It's almost a default for young adult writers to get the parents out of the book as soon as possible so that the young person is then has agency and can do stuff. But I've gone the harder route and I tend to keep my parents in the story as well. And if they're in the story, they've got their own motivations and own ambitions, own hopes, wishes and desires. And the relationship between the uh, the uh, young adult protagonist and the uh, parent, yeah, well, that's part of the story too. Mm. Mm. Uh, this book kept me reading. I wanted to know where it would land at yeah. the end, uh, which, again, for a ghost story, that's a hard ask for me. <laughs> uh, I, I think that Michael Pryor is one of our most accomplished young adult writers in terms of science fiction and fantasy. He does both. What do we call this one? Fantasy, horror... uh, Look, fantasy, horror... As many categories as there are awards possible. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. I like that, yeah. (laughs) All right, so it is called Graveyard Shifting Ghost Town. It's an Ellen and Unwood paperback. Is this a trade paperback? No, No, it's just a standard. Just a standard one. Is there a hardback? Do no, they even do I, young I, adults in hardback? I have dreams of having a hardback one day, but Australian hardback publishing is very few and far between. Yeah. Uh, in the States, they tend to publish a lot of young adult and kids' books in paperback for the library market, uh-huh. uh, but not so much here. So as, does this have, have uh, international reach? Uh, it's a book for everybody, in my yeah. mind, but uh, so far it hasn't landed. It hasn't been picked up by yeah. international people and more to their detriment i'd say (laughs) their loss there would be better people if they took this book up and had enormous sales and know more about melbourne as well that's right exactly it's a uh, for them it's it's not familiar it will be a bit of exotica which i think is good too Hmm. all right well thank you very much for coming in today this fine book graveyard shifting ghost town ellen and unwin paperback and the uh, first book is called um, Gap Year in Ghost Town, so check that one out too. All available in your local bookstores, including the one in Thornbury, 
which doesn't have a name as far as I can tell, deliberately. Based on a real bookshop? Uh, sort of. Sort of. Okay. Sort of, but not the infamous Thornbury bookshop, the one <laughs> that, uh, where the dreadful things happened a little bit down the road. Oh, of course, uh, yes, I know podcast, what you're referring yes. to. I have no idea. <laughs> it's podcasting. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> See, a reference that went over my head. My reflexes weren't fast enough to catch it out of the air. All right, okay, so we'll, uh, we'll go out here with a track called um, Ghostbusters versus Mythbusters. This has some naughty concepts and words in it, and it is uh, an epic rap battle of history comedy song, and that's where we will go to now. Now, before we do that, uh, we'd like to actually give away a couple of uh, copies of the book, which we have available, and we can probably manage to get them to be signed copies, I should imagine. Oh, easily. Easily, okay. Unless you would like an unsigned copy. Too too bad. (laughs) Too too bad. (laughs) Too bad. So they're going to be signed. In fact, here's the sound of signing. (laughs) There you go. I to do better next time. To, <laughs> from Michael to eBay. <laughs> okay, all right. So uh, you have to be a uh, subscriber to Free Triple R FM. Nine three eight eight one zero two seven is the phone number. You have to be a current paid-up subscriber. Nine three eight eight one zero two seven to win a copy of Graveyard Shift in Ghost Town by Michael Pryor. And here's our track: Ghostbusters versus Mythbusters. This is Raymond D. Feist, the man who started the Rift War. Mm, will it help if I say I'm sorry? Zero G. It's totally lacking in gravity. Okay, now we had some winners for the giveaway. Yes, thank you so much um, to everyone who called up for the giveaway and congrats to our two winners. Um, Some of them will be in contact with you. So, And thank you for listening to our interview with Michael Pryor. What what were their names? Their names were Jessica and Mignon. I think Mm. I got that wrong. There you go. So um, thank you to Michael Pryor for coming in to have his little interview. (laughs) And Sophie Eaton from Ellen and Unwood publicist and Elizabeth McCarthy, our talks producer for arranging things there. All right, so we had Ghostbusters versus Mythbusters, an epic rap battle of history with naughty words. Mm-hmm. So, you know, lock up your ears. I'm not quite sure how that works. All right, so uh, I have been off to see a movie called Parasite. Yes. Directed by Bong Joon-ho, who we know from all sorts of things, including the host, one of the finest monster movies of its decade snow piercer a classic one not of just the, a chris evans classic yes one of the finest movies where chris evans has to fight his way from one end of a train to another along with um captain america first avenger <laughs> <laughs> and okja which is a very recent film which is on netflix if you want to catch up with that one too. now uh bong jun ho was also the writer of parasite along with John Won Han. It is, of course, a South Korean film. And um, John Won Han was the second unit director for Bong On Okja. So, you know, there's a, they're keeping it in the, in the team there. Mm-hmm. Now, I, also, I think that this, uh, this, this film has a main theme of class interactions and in that it echoes some of Bong's segment, his segment that he did for the 2008 free story anthology movie, Tokyo, with an exclamation mark, (laughs) which revolved around a maladjusted man with a particular psychological difficulty that I shan't name for spoiler reasons. 
Um, also, a key element of Bong's contribution to another anthology movie, and he's actually done quite a few of these little things, uh, a movie called Free... Dot eleven, which is a time, uh, sorry, a date. Uh, Sense of home, which was about the um, the tsunami, uh, the, uh, the one that hit Japan. Also, the the feeling of a family on the edge from his movie um, in two thousand and nine called Mother. So I think he's picking up on some tropes and themes that he's already been working on in the other movies of his um, his back catalogue. Now, the movie has a plot which I can tell you partly about, but this is one of those ones where the little that you know, the better. But I can give you the setup for it, at least. The Kim family are scraping a, a precarious living from folding boxes for a pizza delivery franchise. Can you imagine how little that pays? Mm. Especially if you do it wrong, <laughs> which is actually possible. So they live in a, a mouldering sub-basement whose main window looks out at pavement level into a back alley, which means that their view, more often than not, consists of drunks peeing up against the wall or the window. <laughs> Now, this doesn't dampen their enthusiasm for bettering their circumstances and the cockroaches infesting their home have nothing on the Kim family for persistence. When an opportunity arises to insert themselves into the wealthy Park family household in a variety of domestic servant and other roles, they do so with scheming gusto, concealing the fact that they're actually all related. So this is actually quite important. Um, if they uh, if they let them if they let it be known that they are actually all of one family, there could be consequences and problems, and not to mention quite a bit of suspicion, given the circumstances that they push their way into the Park family household. Now, that's about all I'm prepared to tell you about the plot of the movie, because this one I think you really do need to go in cold, other than that sort of basic description of how it all kicks off. Uh, the Acting in this is first rate. Um, I thought the direction was good too, in, 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 you know, at the same level. And it would really have been easy to make a hash of this film. That you could have gone so overboard in certain, certain areas. Uh, you could have started weighing in on one side or the other unnecessarily early. I thought that um, he did a really good job of balancing it. In fact, I felt that this could easily be a Jordan Peele movie, or at least a carefully measured peeled onion with each layer evocatively removed as you go along. So there's a lot to discover throughout this film and things that are surprising and I shouldn't go into them. Now, I thought the themes of class division were well handled. Um, The grinding down effects of poverty Mm. as well. Um, As well as the, um, the sort of... I'm not quite the 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 awfulness of being rich. <laughs> I know, I know, we'd all like to have that sort of awful lifestyle thrust upon us, but in this case, Sarah, it is actually quite um, stultifying for mm. the rich people. I think they made great use of locations in this film, um, both the park's architect-built house and the Kim family's little flat. Uh, really, really evocative. And I got, you know, that sense of um, geography, particularly in the Parks house, uh, the Kim's family, not so much because it's just a small a small po- pokey place, but uh, the big house, you got an idea of where you were at all times, uh, which is actually quite important for this very domestic sort of story. 
Now, the the actors, um, well, we'll get on to those in a moment. I think we'll uh, give you a track first from um, uh, the uh, the host soundtrack album, which is uh, written by Byung Woo Lee. And this is kind of a, a medley track, uh, the prologue, the mighty hand river that featured in the host and the monster is growing. So this is from the soundtrack album of The Host. Uh, I am J. Michael Strudzki, creator of Babylon 5, and you're listening to Zero G on 3 Triple RFM. Who are you and what do you want? Hmm. Some tracks there from some monster tracks from The Host, which is one of the fine genre movies that Bong Joon Ho has created over the time, along with Snowpiercer and. And uh, mother, and also now, this new movie, Parasites. Mm-hmm. Mm. So, the, I want to speak briefly about the the actors in this because this is really an actors movie. Nice. Um, the the Kim the Kim family uh, playing the father, Kim Ki Take, is Song Kang Ho, who we know as the son who kept falling asleep. In the host, <laughs> if you remember, there was a, a sort of a vendor's shack, and um, his sort of narcoleptic son just kept nodding off in the middle of <laughs> the most important action along the way. He was also in Snowpiercer. It was old song. Um, he designed the security features on the train, so interacted a lot with Chris Evans's character, and also in a movie which you may have seen if you're a fan of South Korean cinema, Joint Security Area or JSA. Oh, I've heard of that. He was also the, de- the detective in uh, Bong's Memories of Murder. And also in uh, he played the vampire priest in Park Chang-wook's 2009 vampire movie, Thirst, which is a really good vampire movie. Um, other characters in there, uh, I'm not as familiar with their work, uh, but um, Jang Hai Jin plays Chung Suk, the wife, mm-hmm. uh, who also was a champion um, hammer thrower in some sort of Olympic type games or something. It's just a little detail that Bong weaves into the story. Uh, and also Choi Wu Shik and Park So Dam playing the two college age kids who are also pieces of work in this film. Uh, Mr. Park's family, uh, Lee Sung, Kyun, Cho Yi, Jung, playing the mother and the father, have been in so many different South Korean shows. I actually don't need to list them. You just go and look them up on IMDb in that case. <laughs> but they're, they're pitch perfect in selection as the characters and they also actually muscle up quite a bit to being some fairly unlikable people in the course of the movie. Uh, one person who, who definitely also needs to be, have a shout-out to is Lee Jung-yun playing Guk Mung-gwang, the mother in the... Uh, the sorry, the, um, the former housekeeper of the Park family. She's a great actress and she's been so many things, including uh, Bong's own films, Mother and Okja. So somebody there who is... Uh, um, there as part of his uh, ensemble of, of, of actors that he's carried with him through a number of different films. Uh, they all interact extremely well. I don't think there's a wasted moment in any of the, uh, the characterizations of this film or in any of the scenes, really. It's just got that expertly directed feel. Uh, all the way through. As I said, could easily be a Jordan Peele movie in, in many respects. I hope that's not giving away too much. Now, Parasite um, 
can actually be seen quite a few places still. I was checking the listings today. It's been on a couple of weeks. Um, it's on at the Indispensable Nova in Carlton and the Assorted Palace Cinemas in Melbourne, including the Kino and the Como, and even some villages, village complexes like the Jam Factory and so on. Nice. So There's a bit of hype around it, so maybe yeah. you've got a bit of a wider distribution than Asian cinema might normally receive, hmm. which is good to see. Hmm. So let's have a uh, another track from The Host which is Sudden Attack in Broad Daylight. <laughs> Byung Woo Lee's original soundtrack album from The Host. Wow! Hey, Space Buddies! I'm Danny John Jules. I play the cat on Red Dwarf, and I gotta tell you that listening to Zero G is fashionable as wearing knee-length socks with thongs. Zero G, industrial strength sci-fi pum-pum on three triple R. <laughs> Byung Woo Lee's Sudden Attack in Broad Daylight from the Host soundtrack album, one of the great <laughs> films that Bong has done, along with Snowpiercer and Okja and so many others. And now others. Parasite. Now Parasite, yeah. Ah, we'll always have Parasite. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's about it for Zero G today. Joe Brunetti coming up next with Astral Glamour. We're going to get into the Melbourne International Film Festival and pick the genre eyes out of it and read Woo-hoo. its entrails. Myth time. Myth time. Until next week, uh, riffing off Michael Pryor's book, Graveyard Shifting Ghost Town, our Bowie track for the week, We Are the Dead, from Diamond Dogs. Goodbye, Megan. Thank you, Rob. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.